Welcome to Norva Morganum, a podcast series from Uppsala University, produced live by researchers with an interest in interdisciplinary action and novel methods. In this podcast, you will meet guests who work in very diverse ways with academic knowledge production and often with expertise in its usefulness, from blue sky research to applied science, academic entrepreneurship or policy development. Today is our third episode with Martin Lindqvist, President and CEO of SSAB, the largest steel sheet manufacturer in Scandinavia, with a turnover of 7 billion euro in 2020. The steel industry is currently one of the highest CO2 emitters, and the objective of SSAB is to lead the steel industry to a decarbonized future, something which Martin passionately supports, but also has been criticized for. Welcome to my office, Martin. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You graduated from Uppsala University in Business Administration 1998 and have worked at SSAB since 1998. I just wonder if there is something significant that you have brought with you from your time here at the university. It was a great time in many aspects. Uh, I used the two first years to full-time studies and then I worked in parallel but it, I think what I brought with me was the ability to read a lot of texts and, and uh, uh, learn a lot of things so my, I, I guess part of my curiosity comes from me studying at Uppsala University. Okay so when you said read a lot of texts was that based on books or um books and, and study materials and so on but I also try to read some I read history at that time, so I spent a lot of time reading and then you had to be disciplined and, and try to realize what was important to know and what was not so important. Uh, mm. So that, I think, was one good thing I learned. Mm. Have you kept uh, this reading habit? Yes, I read a lot. Uh, ah. That's my way of, of uh, cooling down or do something different. So I read a lot of books. What was the favorite this summer? The favorite this summer, I was actually reading Poltava once again. It was many, many years ago since I read it, but I read a lot of, of about history. So sometime in the future, I will come back to Uppsala and study history. Mm. Lots of our students today, they also combine studies and work. Uh, so they have to finance their living expenses and, and so on. Um, but uh, I, I guess this has changed uh, over time, but you did work at the same time as you studied. So. Well, my girlfriend at that time and my nowadays wife, she also started to study when I was two years in my, into my education. So, and she was uh, very active in show jumping and had horses, so we couldn't afford just to study. So that was yeah. the reason. Ah, okay. Well, it sounds like a good uh, combination yeah. then uh, between you. Um do you have any special memory from your time in, in Uppsala, either at the university or the city as such? And uh No, but I said it was a fun time with a lot of friends. I come from a city called Västerås and in my my friends, uh, 50% of us went to Uppsala and 50% went to KTH. And we had a lot, I had a lot of friends from Västerås and I learned to know a lot of new people as well that, that I still have contact with. So it was a good time in many ways. It's a very lively student yeah, city, of it course. Is. Mm. Um, but now your your colleagues at SSAB, uh, 
Um, do they come from Uppsala or do you work more closely with other university or technical? In, in the group executive team, I, th- I have two colleagues from Uppsala, one, one that went to law school and one that went to business school, but the rest of them, they are mainly from technical universities mm. in Sweden or abroad. Yeah. So um, since you have worked for a very long time yes. uh, <laughs> at SSRB, I mean 1998, and you were president from 2011 until now and uh, ongoing, what have been the most challenging parts during this time? And uh, do you think the difficulties have changed uh, over time? We are in uh, the steel industry is extremely cyclical. And then, of course, my first big responsibility as a line manager back in 2007 and 2008 was and 2009 was extremely difficult. I mean, in first half of 2008, uh, the, the business cycle was as good as it can be. And, and then the financial crisis came and, and we had to let a lot of people go. We had to restructure the whole division that I was responsible for. So that was a very, very tough time with a lot of restructuring and uh, letting a lot of people go, unfortunately. And then, of course, uh, last year in the middle of the pandemic was also extremely uh, hard because we had uh, outbreaks of COVID. We had uh, production standing still. We even had a couple of fatalities. So that was also due to COVID. So that was also a very tough time. Yeah. And uh, it affected a bit of your tono- turnover, you, you told me. Yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> But I mean, you, our industry is built to produce 24-7 uh, all the year around. And, and we usually do that. And, and that's the nature of the process industry. But the year like uh, last year when customers stopped ordering and closed down and we had to sp- close down blast furnaces and these big production facilities, of course, and, and uh, sending people home. It was uh, very different and we lost a lot of turnover and a lot of profitability. Mm. But uh, I've also read that uh, you uh, um, uh, reduced your salary among others too. Yes, of course. I mean, for me, it was quite natural to do that because, uh, I mean, when people suffer, you need to, as a leader, you need to lead by example. And I think that is so important. And and I decided very early that... uh, to reduce my salary and I asked my colleagues in the GEC or yeah, asked them in a slightly polite way at least and told them if they wanted to reduce their salaries uh, as well and we all did so I think that was uh, something we felt we had to do. Yeah and do you think your leading by example there uh, made them you know having to agree to this or do you think they generally I think they would have to? done it anyway but it feels better of course for me i mean of course uh, reducing my salary with 10 or 20% uh, mm. doesn't make a huge difference uh, compared to if you have a completely different salary level but i think it was important to do that and mm. With the Swedish system, uh, the salaries for, for all employees that was on short-term leave was reduced with 7-8%. So if we did more than that, I felt it was mm. the right thing to do. But did you have to work uh, harder during these problems? Do yes, you think? of course. Mm. Um, and in what way? I mean, it's uh, no, But there are always a lot of uh, problems and issues uh, popping up that you need to deal with. So mm. even though we worked quite a lot from home instead of I mean the the biggest difference was that I was not traveling as much as usual which is typically before the pandemic and I guess after the pandemic is over as well is a big part of my working week is traveling around 
in Sweden, Finland or, or abroad. Uh, but uh, now I had to, I could spend all the time because we were not traveling at all, at home, working or at the office. And then you start typically at seven and then you work until uh, uh, the telephone st- stops ringing and that could typically be eight or nine, eight or nine o'clock in the evening. Mm. So all those phone calls and uh, the main part of your job is that to handle problems that crop up or you know, do you not necessarily but a year like last year and also back in 2007-2009 then you need to be very active you need to do whatever you can to preserve cash flow to make sure that uh, we can still continue to invest that we can do things to develop the company even though the short term uh, profitability in the short term turnover takes a big uh, hit so so mm. I mean, you need to go through plans, uh, work with the management teams on different levels and and make sure that uh, the company and the organization does what is needed to be done. Yeah, because then um, uh, you did reduce your salaries, but there was also a bit of a debate in Sweden about the bonuses. Mm. But then this is the explanation that you had to make a lot of more sacrifice to to um, solve all this problem. No, but we didn't take out any short-term bonuses. Uh, we have a long-term incentive program that was due for, uh, I think, uh, this year, and and um, that was a th- that is a three-year program. But mm. uh, other parts we didn't take out any uh, no. short-term incentives. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, I think approximately 14,000 people work at SSAB and I wonder a bit how close you get to their everyday work and if you notice there are any interesting generational shifts. I try to spend a lot of time out in the facilities. We have uh, three big facilities in Sweden, two big in Finland and then we have two very big facilities in North America. And then we are we are active or selling in more than 100 countries. We have employees in more than 80 countries around the world. I find a lot of joy and interest of being out in the production or in together with the salespeople meeting customers. And that's what I typically do over time. And, and as I said, last year was a different year because we, we didn't allow any visitors at any mills. And then I felt if we don't allow visitors, I should also stay away to, to show a good example. But typically, I'm, I spend more than 50% out in the organization. Mm. So that would be a difference now then because some companies are planning to travel less in the future due to climate change and so on. So we have learned how to use other digital tools mm. to have these meetings. But then that would take you uh, away from meeting uh, people in the organization that aren't in the meetings, so to say. No, I wouldn't say so. I would most mm. probably <coughs> continue to travel out and, and, and visit uh, our sites and our sales organizations and so on. What I think will differ is those uh, meetings when you go to Germany for a two-hour meeting or go, you go to Italy for, for half a day meeting. I think we have learned during this process to use uh, other tools and I, I think we will see less of that kind of travel or meeting investors in London for for a day or two that, that you could do from time to time uh, in, in in a different way. So I think that type of travel being will be reduced but but being out in the sites uh, talking to people and and telling them about my view and and uh, the company's vision and strategy and so on that will not change 
Do you have any anecdote about someone you met in one of your facilities? No, but uh, when I was um, heading our strip division, I was uh, asking my wife and family if they wanted to move up to Borlänge because the headquarters at that time was at Borlänge and they said no, they wanted to stay where we lived. So I I spent uh, four nights a week in in a hotel in Borlänge or in a hotel in, in, in Luleå. And I had nothing to do, so I worked until 5, 6, then I went uh, out in the production. And then uh, sometimes, not too often, but sometimes I went also to the gym. But I spent a lot of time out in the production. And I was called up one morning from, from a guy in Borling saying, Hello, Martin, this is whatever his name was, from the B team in the rolling mill. We are playing golf in, in Westeros. Do you want to join us? It was a Saturday morning. I said, no, I, uh, I don't play golf, but I can buy you lunch. I went out and uh, they um, had lunch with them. But they actually called me when they were on their spare time or, or uh, during the weekend playing golf in Westeros mm. and invited me. And mm. then I knew that uh, at least they recognized that I've been out a lot in the production. Yeah, yeah. And I guess maybe for the international listeners, playing golf is in Sweden more of a people's sports and than in many other yes, uh, countries. I guess so. Um, but I know that you are hunting, yes. but you haven't been uh, hunting with anyone then that no, I called just, you up. I just hunt at home with my family and friends. Mm. Yes. Hydrogen Breakthrough Iron Making Technology, or Hybrid, is a new technology developed by SSRB and Partners, where the process of making steel is transformed to minimize fossil use in the production. A pilot facility is in place, and a full-scale production facility will hopefully be inaugurated in 2035, with Volvo as one of their potential future customers. What is so revolutionary with this new technology? In the steel industry, we have been working, you could say, with process development for more than a thousand years. We have used coal to reduce the oxide out of the iron oxide, and iron oxide is really the iron ore. And when you do that, uh, then you get as a byproduct carbon dioxide. SSAB has been the most carbon dioxide efficient steel producer for many, many years because we have been always investing in being been in the forefront of, of known technology. So when we have been proud of ourselves being the most carbon dioxide effective steel producer in the world, um, other parts of the society, including politicians, customers, and a lot of others, has seen us as one of the big problems. And, and that's why that was the starting point to, to try uh, for us to try to figure out a different uh, process to produce steel. Hmm. And um, when you say that there have been stakeholders you know, um, having demands on you, uh, are there also um, economical incentives now that are uh, coming up that make this transition easier or, or is it mainly you know, an opinion that you have no, to follow? Nowadays it's mainly a business development project uh, mm. and with a lot of I would say incentives because especially in Europe now when we have this uh, trade scheme for for uh, dealing with emission rights uh, it is a different cost today when we started this it was mainly started as an idea to solve a problem and at that time the cost of emitting one ton of carbon dioxide was uh, five euro per ton which is uh, of course if for a big producer a lot of money but still 
Uh, but today I think the cost is somewhere between 55 and 60 euros. So there is clearly a financial incentive uh, to change the process as well. But that wasn't the main reason back when we started with this project. No, and, and I think that's interesting um, because in Sweden we have many examples of how companies have to reorient themselves due to, for example, what the employees think about mm-hmm. uh, the processes and operations, uh, or as in the case of Vattenfall, the state-owned uh, utili- energy utility, where we citizens can have a say about this Uh, And you work with some partners in this hybrid project, among which one is Vattenfall. Um, And you work with, I think, Luleå Technical University and uh, LKIAB. So how is it to have all these partners uh, in the project and uh, what type of knowledge do they bring to this project? In this case, when the idea came up, we pretty quickly realized that we didn't have all the knowledge ourselves so we realized that we had to put together a group of of, call it universities, institutions and companies that could help us to fulfill the idea. So we started to to work with KTH and then we realized that we needed someone that knew a lot about electricity and then someone that knew a lot about mining and iron ore and Sweden is a small country, so it's fairly easy. I knew the CEO of Vattenfall and I knew the CEO of, of LKAB, so it was quite easy to just pick up the phone and ask them, and they were on board immediately. And then we started the project with, with the KTH, as said, and, and then we realized that in order to keep what could potentially become important IP rights, we also needed to have some something in between a university and and uh, ourselves. So we went to the government and, and changed an institution called Sverige at that time and made it into, split it up and made it into a metal and mining research institute called Sverige. So we had the three layers of, of call it uh, R&D then, the University of KTH, Ulio Technical University and Ulio Technical University, then Sverim, and then the resources in the three companies together. And then we formed a joint venture company called Hybrid, Devel- uh, Hybrid Development AB, where we also put a lot of, of research and development. So it was dependent on how important it was to keep uh, the IP. Uh, mm. That was decisive for where we put uh, the research and development. Yeah. So um, what I hear is that you were <laughs> driving this uh, new knowledge creation because sometimes one can see that researchers are reaching out to industry and to say that, oh, I have this uh, wonderful um, finding and I want to explore it further and commercialize it together with you. But you were... You were pushing uh, here. And no, to, to be honest, uh, the idea came originally from my CTO or our CTO, Martin Pei, who is a technical doctor in process metallurgy. And he had been, as part of his uh, PhD work, looking into this. And he was, <coughs> since then, uh, thinking about it. And he came to me a day and said, I mean, one day and said, maybe we should look into this. And I felt it was an interesting idea, a real uh, long shot, but but an interesting idea. So I said, we're willing to spend some money uh, with some scientists and, and some students to look into this. And 
then they managed to do this in laboratory scales at KTH and then we said let's go for it and we went to the board and asked them for for a lot of money to to invest in a future pilot plant and they thought it was an interesting and good idea and we took yeah. it from there yeah and also this uh, with the um, IP and and the rights to the patents uh, it's important to tell this to the listeners that in Sweden we have a specific rule so the researchers themselves own their findings and um, they can patent things and it's not in the ownership of the university or anyone else so no one can own your head but then if you do want to work with companies you have to give over this right uh, and then you need to create some sort of middle organization mm. as in this case that can pay for the patents and so on so either you can choose to create a startup yourself as a researcher and pay for the patents mm. or or you do this uh, compromise um, it's uh, a bit interesting also because Eva Vitell is the CEO of mm. the hybrid development yes. Alben. she comes from Vattenfall and mm. has a long history in the wind development uh, um unit mm. and and also other positions there because what i've understood is crucial here is that the hydrogen is produced in an environmentally uh, sustainable way uh, what what mm. we are doing and what we have done actually because we have produced the first batches of steel and i might we might come back to that but what, what the idea from the beginning was not only to produce uh, steel without carbon dioxide emission in the steel process we wanted to create a fossil free value chain so all the way from the iron ore was up in the mountains uh, in in northern sweden until finished products out at volvo cars or volvo group or whatever whatever company so so the idea was to have a complete value chain uh, without any carbon dioxide emissions and then we needed as said fossil free electricity in order to feed the electrolyzers and produce hydrogen out of of water and then using that hydrogen to reduce out the oxide from the iron oxide and as Mm. a byproduct then get water again yeah. And then uh, have uh, the sponge iron, as we call it, melted mm. in electric arc furnaces, mm. fueled by uh, fossil-free electricity. Mm. But you reduce the this carbon dioxide with seven percent. I mean, so it's just no, no, no. We reduce yeah. it with, uh, in theory, hundred oh. uh, percent. The figure seven percent is what the global steel industry is emitting of all the carbon dioxide emissions in the oh. world. Okay. So we take away. We take mm. away 99% of all the emissions. Mm. But I mean, the steel industry globally is one of the biggest uh, emitters of, of carbon dioxide. So without the steel industry taking their responsibility, there is no chance that we can uh, reach the goals in the Paris Agreement. No, and also, uh, for example, Volvo, the car company, is interested in buying this. And, and I think that uh, the production of cars is rising and that thing goes up and down, of so if production of cars goes up and then steel production needs to uh, increase as well so i mean so it's very important to be able to limit your emissions if yes, all production mm. is increased um and this fossil free steel is more expensive for the customer so how do you rationalize this in relation to them well i think uh, it is it could be and it in the beginning it will be but over time it will be less expensive 
because I said when we started this project, uh, an emission rate of one ton of carbon dioxide costed five euro. Today it's 10 times higher at least or 12 times higher. So the gap we talked about in the beginning of 20 to 30 percent is uh, to a large extent gone. So if you compare today f- today's figures, it's not it's not so much more expensive. And I think uh, what it, what needs to happen is that emitting carbon dioxide must become and will become more expensive in the future as well. So I think this, in the end, will be a cheaper process mm. or a more cost-effective process. Yeah. And have you had any feedback from the employees about this turn towards hybrid? Uh, yes, a lot. And that was m- one of my worries. I mean, we have been said producing like this for many many years and and we are now rebuilding our plant in Oxelösund we're investing 6 7 billion sec in into rebuilding it to a fossil free plant and i was a bit uh, not afraid but i thought that we would need resistant resistance from the employees and and maybe uh, people that didn't want to really really see the change but i i would say that we have seen quite the opposite people are extremely proud and when we now rolled a couple of weeks ago the first fossil-free steel in the world, people were extremely proud and they were so happy and they felt that we, uh, as a company, was in the forefront of developing a new technique, but also as a company took responsibility for one of the most important issues we have to deal with, the climate change. Mm. Do you think this is yet another example of um, how we in Sweden have a long history of working in between industry and different industries uh, and universities or technical yes i think that was that is one of the main advantages in sweden i mean we are population wise we are as a mid-sized or a smaller chinese city but we have a fantastic global uh, leading globally leading companies like volvo scania skf atlas copco sandvik you name them and i think they are all developed uh, uh, in in the Swedish way because we work a lot together between the academy, between institutions, between companies and we are not typically competing but we are very often part of a integrated value chain and, and we, we, we work together and develop new products and I think that is something we should be uh, very careful about and, and not risk uh, losing. Yeah, and when you say that it was driven by opinions wanting to make these processes better and uh, decarbonize, and it was not uh, economical incentives, but now those incentives are growing and so on. Why? Do, why but, do but you the inse- mm. just to be clear, the incentives are not mm. so important anymore. This is ah. uh, customer demand driven. This okay. is mainly driven today by a big appetite from customers wanting to have this new product. So, mm-hmm. so if we had it today, we could sell. A lot of it, mm. and the interest is only increasing. Mm. But how do you? Why do you think there is something still in this development? And you say you're first in the world to do this, and that it comes from Sweden, and we have a strong interest in nature and uh, a strong discourse on decarbonization. You know what? Because I'm wondering what has been the key to you actually succeeding with this transformation. I think we have a couple of uh, clear competitive advantages. So first of all, we have a surplus of fossil-free electricity, which is quite rare in, 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 in the world. Uh, secondly, we have uh, excellent iron ore and, and mining capabilities. Uh, 
we have a company like SSAB with a long history of research and development and, and which is a small steel company in the world but still a globally leading company with, with a lot of knowledge about research and development and, and making new products. And then as we talked about we have this uh, also history of, of working together uh, across companies but also uh, with universities and institutions. I think that is unique when I look at my colleagues around the world in the steel industry. SSAB has been innovative and strategic in many different ways. From how the operations are organized, new business models and brands are launched, to technical innovations in the production facilities or in the creation of new products. Here, SSAB has been able to balance effectively between management of existing experience to also harness new knowledge and develop a more entrepreneurial mindset. How? I think it has with the history to do. I mean, in the Swedish steel industry, when we had the crisis in the 70s and the shipyard crisis, uh, the Swedish steel industry was more or less dead than it should have been gone. Uh, and especially the site we have in Oxelösund, that should have been closed. But uh, a couple of uh, people decided that that was not going to happen and they decided to develop new grades and new products and, and took it from, from an idea to a globally leading product uh, for, for abrasive-resistant steel where we have 30% of the global market. I think <coughs> in SSAB's history, there are a lot of examples where we have led the development and are producing a lot of products that no other steel company is uh, has ever produced or can't produce and i think that is in some strange way part of the genes in in ssab mm. so how does it look organizationally because you can really have like a think tank within your organization and that think tank has a mission to come up with these more innovative disruptive ideas or you have specific teams who do that uh, in comparison to this more everyday management of the existing knowledge uh, do you we try to do it in a structured way. We have something that we finance uh, centrally that we call Blue Sky Ideas, which is in within uh, research and development, uh, the research and development area. And I have a person in my management team responsible for, among other things, uh, that and she, she and her organization, they have a budget. And if you have a crazy idea or a strange idea or a new idea or something you want to try out, try out we let people do that and, and very often we fail, of course, as you always do. But sometimes uh, people come up with very good ideas. And, and then, I mean, we have another product that we developed uh, within safety details for cars. And that was just an idea for from one person that uh, did things on his when he uh, during his working day that he was not supposed to do and out of that came a brilliant idea mm. so i think uh, we try to structure it but uh, it's more about uh, letting people go and and give people freedom to test new ideas i think mm. yeah and and it's actually interesting that you used the term blue sky because that's almost on decline in the academic community mm-hmm. uh, where a uh, lot of natural scientists who do basic research and who want to do that um, have to defend their research and apply for funding based on how it can be applied 
and uh, taken up by people like you or, or the industry. Uh, so at no, EU we, level, we, for example. We, so. we fund a lot of doctors. We fund a lot mm. of professorships. Uh, we fund a lot of scientists. We do that by uh, via SSAB, but we also do that. Uh, I'm the chairman of Järnkontoret and we have uh, a lot of funds where we f- fund uh, uh, a lot of different ideas uh, where people mm. can apply. They have an idea, they want to test something or they want to mm. buy some equipment and we typically found, mm. fund it. So mm. so uh, we use the term, I don't know where the term comes from, but internally we use the, we call it the blue sky ideas. Mm. Well, it's, it's quite a traditional term uh, within science, but mm. less and less used in, in our community from what I have heard at least. Um, um, yes, and... Um, would you still say that there might be any tensions between the old ways of doing things and these novel ideas that crop up? Or how do you avoid those tensions? Because it sounds on you as if you are very ready to pick up these novel ideas. But, uh, yeah, but I think people are typically curious. And, and if you have a tradition in the company of, of testing new things and having leadership in different areas, people are not so afraid and they are not so defensive and... Uh, if they believe in the idea and if you can explain the idea or what you want to achieve, then I rather think people want to contribute and, and want to be part of that idea and put a lot of effort and resources into it. So I think it's about also the culture you have in the company. And for us, as I said, I mean, we are in the steel world. We are quite small, but uh, that means that we are quite agile and we are quick to react and we can we can test a lot of things. Uh, and see if it works uh, and sometimes it does and then when people start to see that it this will actually or this might potentially work then then they work very hard and uh, because uh, i mean if you take the hybrid example when we rolled the first deal i mean to see how proud people were and how happy they were that we did this first in the uh, first uh, as the first deal company in the world that also creates a lot of momentum mm mm-hmm. And um, it um, sounds as if you yourself in your position um, manage very well between what the owners want and what the employees want in the company. And but I think for me that goes hand in hand. I mean, mm. what, what, what all of us, what do we want? We want to, to make sure that we develop the company and make sure that it will be a successful company over time. And then you can do that in different ways. But if you have a clear strategy and a clear idea where you want to go and you can convey that message to owners or, or employees or uh, st- other stakeholders, then mm. it's much easier. So mm. I don't see any contradiction in that. Yeah. There hasn't been anyone either among the owners or uh, of the employees who have wanted uh, a m- more um, ambitious green strategy before hybrid or... When we launched uh, Hybrid externally, I was giving a speech at the United Nations for a lot of uh, for at the big uh, climate conference, and and then all my colleagues in the steel industry thought that I lost it completely and said it was completely wrong and would never work and so on. And and I, w- I would uh, I won't say that the board was extremely happy. They they thought it was a good idea, but but. Uh, now all other steel companies in mo- are moving in this direction. So, so I mean, if you st- if you truly believe in something, uh, then it's easier to convince others. That's yeah. my conclusion. Yes, 
Um, our students here, they study business development, entrepreneurship and technology-based innovation, uh, which often brings about these multifaceted issues to consider. So from technical performance to ethics, and they really have to bridge between engineering because they're going to become engineers or uh, have a master in, in some sort of technical area. At the same time, as they need to uh, think about these social aspects or ethical issues... Do you have any advice to them? Uh, no, not really, because I'm not a scientist myself. But I would say that all the... I mean, if you take the, the, the climate change and the issues related to that, I'm a strong believer that we, we must do something. And I'm really worried about what is happening now in the world. And I, I think you should. all problems also present business opportunities. And if you can combine that and find a solution of a, for, for a problem, a, a real problem that a lot of people experience, uh, then I think you're on the right way. Then I would also say that don't underestimate to work in, in big companies. It could sound sometimes boring, but, but it, there is a lot of resources and a lot of freedom. So if you really want to develop something, uh, I would um, once again, as a person at least, uh, uh, join a big company and, and work within there and, and try to solve uh, problems that affects uh, a lot of people. I think that is, would be my advice, if it's a, an advice or not, but still. Thank you very much for coming here today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.